0: All right, guys, we started the series last week. It's Come, Follow Me. Jesus said that. It's a disciple's journey to the cross. And so we're basically sitting in Matthew 3 to 8. We're just going to kind of plunk our way through there. Many of the stories that we'll look at over the next few weeks are found in all the gospel accounts. Today, if you have your Bibles, we're in Matthew chapter 4, And we're looking at a familiar story. Many of us have heard this. It's the encounter of Jesus with Satan. Satan attempted to get Jesus to put his own needs and concerns above the will of the Father. He wanted Jesus to act independently to who the Father was. This story is in all the Gospels. It's in Matthew. It's in Mark. It's in Luke. It's just not in the book of John. So Satan wanted Jesus to sacrifice his future for the present. Isn't that what you and I struggle with today? Well, like when you and I are tempted, that's our struggle. The immediate for the long term. The present rather than the future. Jesus had just been baptized in water. We talked about that last Sunday. He was ready to embark on his public ministry. Satan wanted to destroy Jesus' ministry before he even began. Just like today, Satan always is in the business of trying to derail us before we can accomplish God's purposes. So if you have your Bibles, let's read Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at the 11 verses that tell us the story. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting, 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's like the most obvious verse you've ever seen. 40 days, 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. The tempter, Satan, came to him and said, "'If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread.' Jesus answered, "'It is written, man shall not live on bread alone.'" But on every word that comes from the mouth of God, then the devil, verse 5, took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift up, their ha- lift up you in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to the very high mountains and showed him the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor, all their glory. All this I will give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God only and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. So remember last week, Jesus had been just baptized in water. The spirit of God descended upon him in the form of a dove and his father declared to him, you are my beloved son. Now the story shifts and we're into he's tested. Now, just so we get this clear in our minds and in our hearts, Jesus was not out of the will of God. Nor, he w- nor was he committing sin in being tested. Being tempted is a part of our normal world because it's broken. Just because you feel like you're being tempted, oh, is there something going on in my life over here that isn't of God, that's not necessarily the case. In Matthew's account, The one we just read, it says that he was led into the wilderness. In Mark's account, it uses even stronger language. You're going to see it on the screen. Mark chapter 1, verse 12, it says, at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. So Matthew kind of goes, he was led into the wilderness. Mark goes, man, he was sent. So what does temptation look like to the spotless Son of God? So much of what I experience when it comes to temptation is the return of previous temptations. It's not obvious what temptation looks like to Jesus. The Bible insists that he was tempted in all different points, just like we are, but he was without sin. His temptation on the face of it seems foreign to us. Let's face it. You and I have never been tempted to turn stones into bread. Uh, I've never been taken up to the highest point in the city. So what is Jesus being tempted with? How is it something that applies to us? Well, before we answer that question, let's actually just go back a little bit into the first few chapters of Matthew. We started in Matthew chapter 4 today, but if we look back at Matthew chapter 1 and 2, we actually get an idea. As we read the first few chapters of Matthew we can see that there's this identification theme that's emerging. Matthew begins his book with a genealogy that most of us, if we read Matthew chapter 1, would struggle to pronounce names. But in, those, in that struggle to, to put names in the right context, it puts Jesus in the place or in Jesus' genealogy with Abraham and David. So Jesus is later referred to as the Messiah King in biblical terms David's greater son hold on to that in chapter two we still have the account of the birth and related events some things happened to Jesus that are kind of microisms of what happened to Israel did Israel go down into Egypt and get called back out did Jesus go down into Egypt and get Called back out. In fact, the alignments between the two come closer and closer, and in every gospel, there are different ways of portraying this. Now, some of you are video game people. There's little carrots in video games, just like there's carrots in scripture. See, Israel spent 40 years in the desert. Jesus spends 40 days in the desert. It's an exciting piece, friends, when you begin to understand how complex the Bible is, but how connected it is from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Adam was tempted in the garden. The second Adam, Jesus, was tempted in the desert. The first Adam in Genesis had plenty and beauty and a companion, a wife. The second Adam, Jesus, was in the desert in stark ugliness and want. He was hungry and alone. The first Adam in Genesis sinned and brought about our downfall. The second Adam, Jesus, prevailed and brought about our release. Are you starting to see the connection? Well, let's talk about these temptations. So the very first temptation, the very first temptation, was to doubt God's provision and love in the face of circumstances. See, Satan often takes advantage of our circumstance and wants to tempt us. He takes a need that you and I have and tempts us to meet that need in a wrong way. We may feel justified. Our need is to give in to temptation, but this always leads to disaster. Satan begins by casting doubt. If you go back to Matthew chapter 4, look at verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. The tempter, Satan, came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Satan knew, of course, that Jesus was the Son of God. He knew also that Jesus was hungry. This was a weak moment for Jesus. So what does Satan do? Challenge you, challenge Jesus at our greatest point of need. Satan challenged Jesus to prove who he was and in doing so meet his own need for food. Under different circumstances, it wouldn't have been wrong for Jesus to meet his need by turning stone into bread. The the miracle here would have been wrong because it would have been done here in a response to Satan's challenge. See, Satan often traps us by introducing a small element of doubt. Do you remember back to Genesis? The first temptation to Adam and Eve begins, has God really said? So here, Satan's going, if you really are the son of God... He presents it as something that at least is beneficial. Maybe it's even insightful. Look at all these temptations. There's not a single temptation to Jesus to commit adultery. There's not a single temptation to cheat on your taxes. There's not a temptation here to mistreat your kids. There's not a single temptation to rob a bank. In fact, on the face of it, this seems very reasonable. He's just spent 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. He's hungry. Remember Israel? What they had faced when they lived in the desert? What did they do? They complained. Wasn't that the heart of so much of their problem in the wilderness? They could not trust God. The God who had done all the miracles of the Exodus. The God who brought them across the Red Sea. The God that had given them water from the stone. The God who had given them manna from heaven. The God who ensured their shoes would never wear out in their 40-year journey. And the God who gave them quail. But they still just were complaining. Satan here is not saying, I want you to do something wicked. He's not saying, let's do something from a sexual standpoint. What he's suggesting is, feed yourself. Jesus, aren't you a human being? You have to take care of your body, don't you? So today, our physical and personal discomforts are often used by Satan to make us, in the first instance, doubt God. Doubt is love. Doubt is care for us. Doubt is provision. See, it's relatively easy to trust God when everything's going well. Then you get those migraines or some kind of illness. And if someone says to you, curse curse God and die, you'll be tempted to do it. The temptation here had its subtle points. Really, it was Satan saying, just doubt just a little bit that God really loves you. Jesus had to come to identify himself with human beings, and throughout all the four Gospels in various ways, we get this this saying. Jesus will not do anything apart from who God is. Could the Lord Jesus, as a man, trust his Father sufficiently? Or should Jesus, the the Godhead take some kind of independent action apart from his Father to satisfy his own needs. I love Christ's reply. Christ says nothing. Jesus says nothing about his sonship. No, he knows who he is. Instead, what he immediately does is appeal to Scripture precisely because what he is doing is thinking about his own taking up himself. Seeing himself redeem Israel's history. Jesus is the new Israel. He knows that. Well, Jesus quoted this verse, and you'll see it on the screen from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse 2, it says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you'd keep his commands. Verse 3, he humbled you causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna with which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes didn't wear out. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Already in Exodus chapter 4, we find God saying, Israel is my son. Let my son go that he may worship me. Now God is saying to us, these are my beloved children with whom I'm well pleased. So Jesus submits himself by the leading of the Spirit into the wilderness. And at the end of it, does Jesus complain? Which was Israel's great sin. Was there a waning of trust? No. He responds exactly that word from God which was given by Moses to the people a long time ago. That word which people repeatedly failed and which Jesus now obeys. What this means for us this morning is if there's any sort of tension between what the word of God demands and what our needs are, what our apparent demands of immediate physical circumstances, the word of God always wins out. Sometimes, friends, that's going to mean deep sacrifice for you. It might be a choice at work. It's so easy to slant things just a little bit or to twist things a little bit. Friends, this is what Jesus experienced right at the beginning of his public ministry. The point isn't to ignore food. Jesus is not teaching a spirituality which overlooks a physical need. Jesus declared that man should not live by bread alone. (laughs) Certainly, man does require food. Jesus required food. Satan tempts us with money, with automobiles, boats, education, furniture, prestige, so many things. All of these things, like food, are fine in themselves. It's our attitude in them that counts. Doing the will of God and being obedient to his every word is more important than food or any other material thing. Most of the time... We are simply called upon to trust God to provide our needs in his time, in his way, and with his result. But then what's the second temptation? The second temptation was to twist God's word for personal advantage. If the first temptation drives us to the word, the second temptation then finds Satan using the word to trip Jesus up. Look at Matthew 4, verse 5 and 6. The the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written. He will command his angels concerning you. They will lift him up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. After all, if Jesus knows himself to be the Messiah, could God let the Messiah die? In fact, that isn't even part of Jesus' logic with his own disciples in Matthew chapter 16. Do you remember the story of Jesus sleeping in the back of the boat? (laughs) What did Jesus say to his disciples? You of little faith. Of course they had little faith. How could they possibly believe Jesus is going to drown? If he really is the Messiah, did they really think God is making a mistake with this storm? It's impossible that the Messiah is going to die by drowning. Well, then, shouldn't we apply the same logic here? Go ahead, jump off the temple, get a little extra credibility. God's not going to let you down at this point, is he, is what Satan's saying? Here's the key, friends. You cannot pray in your own life. day. You cannot not pray. Let me say that again. You cannot not, two nots. Pray in your own life day after day and be spiritual at the end of it. You, you can't not pray and then go, oh, I really love God with all my heart. Listen to Jesus' response in verse 7. It is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan's attacking Jesus' faith instead of becoming something that trusts God and surrenders to His Word and delights in God's ways and has God's thoughts and priorities and God's will and God's power and truth. Satan is going, let's kind of throw a little magical bit here where you sort of leap out, you take a running jump and say, catch me, God. Satan does use Scripture. Scripture. Friends, the Bible can be distorted by misquoting, quoting out of context, quoting without balance. You can talk about being saved by grace until you have so much grace that you have no holiness. You can talk about holiness until you have so much legalism that you don't have any grace. 1 Corinthians 10:13, Paul wrote these words, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. Let's commit at daybreak to use scripture in a way that's honest and humble and teachable. That we avoid approaching God, letting him try to show off or manipulate him by using texts to twist blessings from him. The idea here is don't test the Lord your God. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. The second temptation was a temptation to twist God's word for personal advantage. And that one too still comes to us, doesn't it? Previously, Satan wanted Jesus to stem his hunger by turning stones into bread. This time, he wants Jesus to prove his identity by throwing himself down from the pinnacle or wing of the temple. Friend, Satan knows scripture. He quotes from Psalms. The verse will come up behind me. Here's what Satan is saying from Psalm 91 For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The temptation here was to misapply a wonderful promise of God. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, God demonstrated his watchful care over his son. However, there were times when Jesus went through difficulties and was left all alone. Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? The chief priests, the elders, the crowds came to capture Jesus in Matthew 26. It said, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who will draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you not think I can't call my father? And he will come at once. He'll send 12 legions of angels. Then this verse in 54, but then how would scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Satan's taunting Jesus to try to raise doubt about his identity. If you are the son of God. See, Satan seldom gives up with one try. At at Massa, the Israelites demanded that Moses provided them with water. Instead of trusting God, they complained. They tested God with their grumbling. In spite of their complaining, God generously or graciously supplied water. He commanded Moses to strike the rock with his rod. When he did this, when Moses did this, the water came forth. Moses said this to the people. Israelites, do not test the Lord your God. We have to be careful in our application of the promises of God. Our temptation, Matt's temptation, is to call upon God for some immediate benefit. The third temptation was to break the first commandment. Look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Says these words, all this I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said, away from me, Satan. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Whatever else Satan knows about Jesus, he knows he's the father's son. That he's slated one day to be the king of kings and lord of lords. So he says, here's a shortcut. It is not at all clear to me that Satan even understands the cross at this juncture. But he does say, here we go. Here's a cross-free way. Bow down to me and it's all yours. Friends, it's vital for us to remember that Satan cannot give what he promises. Therefore, the first sin is to not love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. To put it another way, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. God does not exist to bless us. Not in the first instance. We exist for God. By his will, we're made and for his glory. Do you see the theme of the temptations? The temptation is always to claim immediate results. Both Satan and Jesus knew that the kingdoms of the world belonged to God and that Christ his son would be the king of kings and lord of lords. The first temptation was about now. The plan of God was different. Jesus would fulfill God's plan as a servant before he became a king. The price of immediate gratification would have been idolatry. Jesus, who is both God and man, would not compromise. No illicit gain, whether it was short-term or long-term, could tempt him. He would fully trust the Father who would give him in his time and in his way the kingdoms of the world. Satan will do his best to tempt us to gain power through idolatry. He will offer us as much as he can if we put him before God. If we put anything before God, it's idolatry. When we worship other things, other people, we have misplaced our allegiance, our minds, our affections, our will. Even though this may empower us in the short run, the results are always spiritual disaster. So let's follow Christ's example in worshiping God alone. When we follow Christ closely, we're following God. When we're In him, we're doing God's will. This doesn't allow us to worship anything else. Satan tempted Christ to seek immediate gain through unprincipled action. He wanted Christ to turn bread into stones, to cast himself off the highest point of the temple, and to fall down and worship him. In every case, Jesus turned Satan back by quoting scripture. Those are the three temptations. Notice that Christ was tempted from opposite perspectives. Poverty and hunger on one hand, and offered wealth and power on the other. It's a small wonder then when Hebrews chapter 4 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess." For we don't have a high priest who is unable to be with us in our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he didn't sin. So friends, let us approach the God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus serves as a model on how to withstand temptation. It's not that I'm tempted with turning stones into bread, but I am tempted to doubt God when things are going wrong for me spiritually. They don't have to be very serious things. Jesus' uh, temptations, after all, are a piece that reminds us that he'll be with us. We serve a Jesus who took children into his arms. We serve a Jesus who is tempted as we are and knows what temptation looks like. He's the one who says to us, Take up your cross and follow me. As Jesus began his public ministry, he stands in line of sinners who were baptized by John. He reminds us of Israel's experience in the desert. He calls forth his disciples. He launches into his ministry. He's the new Israel. He's the new Adam, to use Paul's language. He starts with a whole new humanity down another path, and by one man's sin, death entered, so that by one man's obedience, death is conquered. Remember, Jesus stands in your place. How in any sense could death be substituting for us? He stands where we stand. He walks where we walk. Satan has temporary power as an enemy of God. Jesus called him the ruler of this world. But in John chapter 12, verse 31, he does not have outright ownership. He rules over evil forces by permission of God. I love the way the story ends. In verse 11, we read, Then the devil left him, and the angels that came and attended him, I love how Mark wrote it in Mark chapter one. He said this after he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals and the angels attended him. The angels ministered to Christ throughout the 40 days. In a special way, they ministered to him at the end of his temptation. Our God will never leave us alone. In the middle of all the trials and tests that you have, he is with us. He may seem to be unseen, but he is there. Satan always will attack power. Satan will always attack fame and our esteem, and Satan will always attack our safety and security. C.S. Lewis said this, This life is not a safe life, but God did promise us goodness in this life. I want to end this message and we're going to end the next messages and the team can come on up with just reading Matthew 5. We're going to study it, but as we get sent out each week, I think these are great reminders for us. Why don't you stand and receive these words? God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. God blesses those who mourn for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they'll see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will see God, for they will be called the children of God. Sorry. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for great is the reward that awaits for you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor Can you make it salty again? It'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on its stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Amen.